Some people are naturally better at networking or at leading, but we can all learn it. And for people like me who came from behind, we can't just rest and say, well, I'm, I'm good enough. If you put the effort in, you can go from behind the curve to being excellent in that field. I'm your host, Rob Cook, and this is Contenders Wanted, the show where we believe incredible success doesn't have to come at the expense of your family, your faith, or anything else that makes life worth living. Too many success stories nowadays celebrate people who either sacrificed these things for their own success or became successful before realizing the importance of them. Our mission is to show the world you can have both incredible success and the things that make your goals worth reaching for. We know it's possible because we've seen it in our own lives and the lives of our guests. So if you're ready to go from contender to champion, then join us where contenders are always wanted. Can you think of an example of someone or something in a perceived disadvantage that then turns it into their advantage? When I thought of this question, my mind immediately went to a movie my dad and I watched the other day on TV. It's a 2016 action thriller movie starring Ben Affleck and Anna Kendricks called The Accountant. For those of you who haven't seen it, Ben Affleck plays a math savant who is the accountant for all of the baddest guys in the world. He cooks their books, launders their money, and finds accounting fraud that no one else seems to be able to see. Naturally, as a CPA myself, I was interested. And I mean, why not? It's not very often that you see accountants played in such a BA role as they did in that movie. Anyways... The reason why this movie came to my mind was because Ben Affleck's character has high-functioning autism. In the movie, it shows scenes of him as a kid struggling to just cope with the basic stresses of life. Things like bright lights and loud noises. Things that, for most of us, are just part of life. But for him, were debilitating. The movie shows how he was able to overcome this apparent weakness and struggles and instead harnesses all of his gifts in an environment that uh, highly values them, even if it was a bit shady. This theme, though, of making the most of apparently difficult or disadvantageous situations seems to pop up all over the place. Just as I was writing this, I thought of other examples. The engineers in Apollo 11 figuring out how to make the spacecraft run with just what was in that one cardboard box. Or Edmund Dantes, locked away in his dank, dark cellar, taking lessons from his, quote, teacher, that would eventually become the means of his revenge on his enemies in the Count of Monte Cristo. But I think you know what I'm getting at here. This is a common theme. And one area where this sometimes comes up is in conversations around higher education. It's clear to most who graduate from college that they don't use a lot of what they learned in school and instead find themselves faced with a whole new set of skills that we wind up needing to develop. Things like networking, communication, leadership, negotiation, sales, management, and on and on and on. I mean, just a few weeks ago, we did an episode with Todd Lay in episode 36, where he shared how he was able to be successful without nearly any college education. But there's still value in higher education. So how do we make sure that we get the most out of it and then turn these missing skills from a disadvantage into our advantage once we're actually out in the workforce? Well, our guest today is Mark Hirschberg, and although he attended elite-level higher education, it didn't take long for him, once he started his professional career, to feel like he had missed some critically important skills in that education process. This then, in turn, led him on a path to find, develop, and master these missing skills, and then later teach them to others so that they can supercharge their own professional careers. Mark Hirschberg is the author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. Mark was educated at MIT and received a dual bachelor's in physics and in electrical engineering and computer science, and a master's in electrical engineering and computer science as well, focusing on cryptography. Mark spent his career launching and fixing new ventures in startups, Fortune 500s, and academia, and he's developed new software languages, online marketplaces, new authentication systems, and tracked criminals and terrorists on the dark web. Mark helped create the Undergraduate Practice Opportunities Program at at MIT, which later became called the Career Success Accelerator, and he's now been teaching that for the last 20 years. On the episode today, he and I talk about the valuable meta-lessons that Mark did not appreciate from his higher education initially, and how we can get the most out of our own higher educations. We then talk about some of the shortcomings he recognized in his personal higher education, and some specific tactics that he uses and teaches to overcome these shortcomings that we can all apply today. Mark then tells us whether or not he feels his elite level education was worth it and what he feels are some possible ways we can fix our looming education problem here in the United States. 
For Mark's full bio, check out our show notes on your podcast player or on our website at contenderswanted.com. And with that, let's jump right in. Mark Hersberg, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Mark, you came highly recommended from uh, actually another podcaster who I had been on their show, and they thought you would be a great fit. So I'm really excited to have you here. Had a really in- cool time. I really enjoyed actually doing a lot of the research for the this episode. So thank you so much for coming on. Why don't you take a moment here at the very beginning and introduce yourself to listeners? We're, we're going to do a little intro here at the beginning that'll tell them a little bit about you, but take a moment and introduce yourself. Tell them what it is, who you are and what it is that you do. I have this very interesting dual career. I began as a software engineer coming out of MIT and quickly realized that I wanted to become a CTO, a chief technology officer. As I learned what that was, I realized it wasn't just about being the best engineer. There were all these other skills, leadership, communications, networking, negotiating. I needed those skills, but no one ever taught them to me. So I had to develop those skills in myself. As I was learning them, I realized these are not just for executives. They also apply to mid-level managers, to junior-level employees, to entrepreneurs and solopreneurs. These are universal skills. And as I was discovering this, MIT and some of the surveys that they were doing found that these were the needed 21st century skills. I've seen similar research from other universities. This isn't MIT specific. These are the skills companies want to see and certainly skills you need to have if you're an entrepreneur but they're not being taught. So MIT created a program referred to as the Career Success Accelerator. When I heard they were doing this, I said, you know, I've been teaching my team some of these skills. I'm happy to share my content with you. And what I thought would just be a meeting, I'd teach them a couple of things I'm doing. They invited me to help teach the course, to help create it, and then to stay and help teach it, which I've now been doing for the past 20 years. So in addition to my career as a CTO, building startup companies, helping Fortune 500s build startups with inside them, I've had this parallel career teaching, speaking, and now the book, The Career Toolkit. So it's been a great time doing two things I really enjoy. Yeah. That was actually one thing that I noticed immediately is I felt like you had such an interesting path, frankly. I think all of us have kind of a winding path to some extent, but you... I mean, you were trained at MIT in all things technology um, and then go on and teach at Harvard and MIT later and you're chief technology officer and you read this book and you have all these, and then not to mention, we're not, we were not even really going to have time, I think, today to talk about your parties and the ballroom dancing and the cufflinks and all these other things that you have <laughs> that are just so, it's such a fascinating path. So for listeners out there, if you enjoy our conversation today, be sure to go check Mark out. You'll learn a lot more than I'm sure we'll have time to cover here today. Um, but as I was doing my research on you and I was learning about you and your path. The one thing that I uh, kind of latched onto and this, I'd like to kind of try and make a theme here of, of, of this podcast episode today is, is this idea, idea around formal education. You've had this unique experience to be inside both on a student from a student perspective and from the teacher's perspective, the highest levels of the formal education system here in the United States. And there's a lot of differing opinions about um, the effectiveness of higher education, its usefulness, and there's debates all over the place. And so, uh, part of what I'd love to talk about today is get your perspective on the value of that higher education, because ironically in your book and different things, you kind of both give it a little bit of a left jab and then give it a little water. Uh, And so I think you kind of have this unique perspective, uh, on the formal education system that we have. So how did, in your opinion, how do you feel like your formal education at MIT and other places, um, how did it equip you for later stages of your career? I have degrees in physics, electrical engineering, and computer science. I minored in political science, and then my graduate work was in cryptography. Now, those are all very technical fields. And people say, oh, well, physics, do you really use much physics? I work in technology so they can at least see the computer science. I do cybersecurity, but physics, physics was actually the best thing I studied. Now, it's been a long time since I've had to calculate a quantum potential. I don't do a lot of that these days. But every field, every class and every field, there is some meta lesson that they are teaching you. And what's great about physics, physics teaches you how to problem solve more than just about any other field. That's why we see physicists go into a lot of other fields, into consulting, into finance, into technology, into 
less so marketing, but some do go in there. And it's because we can take these fundamental skills about problem solving. So if you think about a physics problem, if you've ever done college level physics or maybe even high school, we talk about, well, here's the situation. You have the cow rolling down the hill. Okay, well, first we say, what's important? We need to understand gravity. We need to understand how steep the hill is. What can we approximate away? Well, we're going to treat the cow as a sphere, which of course in real life doesn't work, but for these problems, treat it as a sphere. Yeah. Or the car rolling down the hill and you say, well, we can ignore friction for this problem to get really advanced. And that's what they're testing you on. So it's saying what matters, what doesn't matter? How do you set it up? Learning techniques, different problem solving approaches. Famously in physics, we do something called rotating the coordinate space. And that helps take a complex problem, shifts it into a more tractable version. And when you learn these skills, you start to say, okay, well, now I have a problem in the real world. It's not about cows rolling down a hill. But let me think, how can I rotate the coordinate space? How can I look at it a different way or what's relevant or not? And it was so great for problem solving. So I love that I did physics, not because it was interesting, which I still find extremely interesting, but it gave me such good fundamental skills. And by the way, other fields, if you learn history, you learn the concept of cycles and patterns and cause and effect in societies and even individuals. So each field has its own meta lesson. And when you can hone in on that, that's where you get the value of higher education. I love this idea of the meta lesson. Um, I think any of us who have had any sort of formal education can then look back and see the different meta lessons. So for example, I studied accounting when I was in college and yeah, there's a lot of details, grainy details within accounting, but fundamentally at the end of the day, It's about seeing the whole picture and does it make sense and where it doesn't, it make sense. And where do we need to dig deeper, right? It's, it's a, just a different version of problem solving to some extent, almost. And that's what we do in accounting. We make sure that all the pieces fit together and it all makes sense. And does it tell the right story or is the story kind of funny and where do we need to go find the, the truth in that story? So yeah, that's, that's a fantastic point. The meta lesson. Um, did you find yourself using your physics problem solving then very shortly then into your career? I did. Now, again, not a, okay, what's the cow here? But just thinking about how to deal with problems, how to frame them, how to set them up, and then how to apply different approaches to them. So I'm, I think very early on, right out of school, I was using it at that meta level. Okay. I love that. I can think, I think I could instantly see managerial, you know, reasons to kind of break down problems that way. Um, but I, I'm sure there were, you know, applications immediately right out of school. Uh, so then that then begs the question, if the meta lesson is there, how then did your formal education not equip you? Uh, you talk about these a little bit in your book and, uh, I've heard you talk about them in, in various, uh, episodes that you've been on in other shows, but how then on the flip side, did it not prepare you? Well, first, I didn't fully appreciate the meta lessons. It wasn't until I was in grad school and I heard a professor talking about this that it clicked. And here's something everyone can relate to. If you think back to geometry in high school, everyone hates geometry. I loved it. Why are we teaching geometry? It's not like you're going to get a question about a triangle from your boss. Yeah. But geometry, we're not just teaching you how angles add up. If you remember those two-column proofs, We're Mm -hmm. teaching you how to go from something you know is true and reason to get to another conclusion. Mm -hmm. It's rational thinking. It's logic. And that's something we use every day. Given this premise, what is the conclusion? And the failure to do so leads us, unfortunately, to some bad outcomes in society. But no one bothers to teach you this in school. And so we all had that class. And some of us, I learned that, thankfully, because my teacher did mention it. But so many people took that class and missed that whole lesson. So there were a lot of things in school I didn't appreciate at the time. But then even more generally, it's the fact that these skills alone aren't sufficient. Knowing how to do that raw problem solving in physics, understanding how to build circuits in electrical engineering, that's useful for being an electrical engineer, but that's not the only skill. And it recognizes there are other skills, networking, leadership, negotiating, These are all skills we use. We even know about it. We all heard about networking and leadership when we were kids, 
People told us it was important, but no one bothered to teach us how to do it. And that's where education fails us. I got it. So I, I like that there's a there's effectively two pieces here, right? There's, we get the meta lesson. Or we fail to see the meta lesson sometimes unless someone points it out to it out to us like your teacher did, right? Um, I, and I think for those who feel like higher education is a waste or it's, you know, there's time and money can be spent in other places more efficiently. I think they may be follow, falling to that fallacy, right? This idea that, because they don't see their own meta lessons. They just see, oh, I didn't get a specific skill that is then going to translate to me earning money. And then I can go and immediately hit the workforce and, and do fantastic using this, this skill set. They missed the, their own meta lesson and therefore missed that point. Uh, but then your second point of formal education just sometimes just doesn't equip you with other skills that you really do need. You spend so much time on this, maybe one technical aspect of it, say learning physics or learning how to make a circuit board, or in my case, learning financial statements and technical accounting that you miss some of these softer skills that were so important. So how did you then develop some of these softer skills in your own journey and how are you helping others uh, develop them now? This is a case where being behind the curve being not as good as other people turned into an advantage because okay. I was extremely weak on these skills. I was weak on social skills in general. It has to do with growing up a nerd in the 80s and a number of things that happened early on. So I didn't have a lot of these skills. I was extremely left-brained. If you've ever watched The Big Bang Theory, mm-hmm. I fit in perfectly with those show. guys. I actually told Bill Purdy, I said, I'm convinced you had a camera in my fraternity house at MIT and just recorded conversations because those guys (laughs) are me. Recognizing that I was super weak, I said, okay, I know I have to get better. And whereas most people were naturally okay at this, some naturally very good, some were just okay. I was so weak. I had to really formally study this. I had to understand what are the elements that I'm not understanding? How do I put those together? How do I get better at these skills? And by learning it that way for myself, it allowed me to better understand these elements to teach it to others, like the students I have, and of course, the book. So all these skills, it's important to note, they're all learnable. Just like you learned accounting, I learned physics. You can learn to play golf. You can learn to swim. Some people are naturally better at some things and others. There are people who are naturally better at golf, naturally better at accounting. It doesn't mean the rest of us can't get good at those. We just have to work more. Some people are naturally better at networking or at leading, but we can all learn it. And for people like me who came from behind, we can't just rest and say, well, I'm, I'm good enough. And if you put the effort in, you can go from behind the curve to being excellent in that field. love that. And I think you're completely right. I had never really thought about the fact that if you were behind, that could be an advantage. Because to your point, you got to put in more effort and got to think about it more. You got to do more. I think it's a natural thing for those that are uh, have a natural inclination, say, for networking to just kind of coast and just show up. And they might not be nearly as effective as someone like yourself who had to work more towards it and had to specifically develop skill sets or assist or develop a system or something that they might follow to get better at it. So the, that's a really, really good point. Just because you're that's good reframing at the problem. That's exactly. Physical. There you go. That's a great, that's a great point. Seeing it from just a different perspective, right? Um, yeah, no, that, that's great. So then this makes me actually question, how did you learn yourself personally, some of these skills and how are you teaching or, or how are you teaching them now? When you run into the wall enough times, you eventually learn to recognize a wall. Okay, fair enough. And so I certainly, I tripped over these skills early on. I did not have them. I did not appreciate them. But I started to recognize, oh, I screwed that up. I said the wrong thing. I didn't lead effectively. I knew I wasn't good at them. And there is a famous kind of paradigm for learning about unconsciously unknowing, where you don't even know what you don't know. Mm. Blind spots. Blind spots. To consciously unknowing. I know I don't know how to do this Mm -hmm. to consciously doing, okay, I am now executing on, but I I have to work at to unconsciously doing. Mm -hmm. And so you can think as a, as an analogy, right. When you think about when you're one years old, you don't know, you don't know how to drive a car at a certain point when you're eight, you say, okay, I don't know how to drive a car. I know this. 
when you're 16, you learn how to drive a car, but say, okay, don't, don't distract me. Don't, I, I got to focus. And now that we're adults, well, yeah, of course, turn on the radio, let's chat. I don't need my full attention for it. And so that's how we typically learn and behave. We build up that muscle memory, as you note. So I went from unconsciously not knowing to recognizing the shortcoming and then very intentionally working on these skills. Back then, we didn't have a lot of great podcasts like this one. So I had to do a lot of reading and a lot of experimentation on my own. Even once I got good enough to teach at MIT, honestly, teaching really helps. Richard Feynman, a famous physicist, always said, if you want to learn something well, teach it to someone else. And the act of teaching forced me to really break it down even further to help explain it. And just with my fellow teachers, even today, having done it for decades, there's still always something new I can learn because you are never going to completely master any of these fields. Yeah. I think those last two suggestions are incredibly valuable. This idea of experimenting and then teaching. Uh, I know for myself, I've done tons of work of listening to podcasts, reading books and all sorts of different things, but I never felt like I was reaching a level of mastery and competency in those particular skills until I actually went and did them. Um, and this might also be maybe one of those arguments made by those other, the other side that thinks, you know, higher education isn't that valuable because you don't get a lot of application in certain things, but we can then turn that same principle and use it for ourselves. And we're trying to develop these, these, these skills. Because uh, if you just listen to this podcast, but if you never go and do anything, it's not going to change your life, right? And it's the same thing with any of these skills. We, we can read about networking all day long. We can read about leadership. But until you go and try and lead or you go and try and network, you're never going to realize where you're, well, maybe I do have these couple of pieces. And, oh, I don't have that one. I got to work on that. All right. What am I going to do better next time? Um, and then, like you said, teaching, breaking it down. Yeah, I have definitely found that for myself in all areas of my life. The more that I can take opportunities to teach about things, so much more clarity uh, comes out. That's for sure. Let's use a sports analogy. Okay. If you want to learn basketball, I can explain to you the rules of basketball, but if you don't actually do it, you will not get good at. Yeah. Now, the other mistake is I can say, okay, I'm going to teach you basketball. You're going to join my team. But before you do, I'm going to send you to a two-day basketball clinic. Okay, great. You're back. No more training for you. You had the clinic. What more do you need to learn? And yet this is what we do. We take people and at most we might say, oh, you're promoted to a manager. We're going to send you to a two-day manager training program. Okay, great. Done. You have the training. But just like basketball, what do we have to do? We need to drill. We need to scrimmage. Good people might even watch the tape, watch ourselves, watch other people. There is a way to replicate this. And you're right that education typically, formal education typically doesn't do this. They can. In fact, the MIT class is how we do some of this. But you can do it yourself, and here's how. Create peer learning groups. And by the way, there's a free download on the website on the resources page explaining how to do this. Now, ideally, your company will want to implement this and do it themselves. If they don't, well, I'm about to explain, you can do it yourself, create a local meetup group, get other people together. Here's a basic idea, create these groups. I recommend about six to eight people in size, but there are ways you can scale it up. And what you wanna do is get some content. Yes, you can use my book and you can read parts of my book, but if you don't wanna use my book, use a different book, use articles, use a great podcast like this one, listen to an episode, and after you all digest that content, come together and discuss it. Because here's the thing, this isn't like the quadratic equation where you say, here's the equation, memorize it, apply it. There is no formula for leadership. There's no three things to do to always communicate. These are subtle and complex skills. So we have to practice them. So first we're gonna discuss it because you're gonna get something out of it that I didn't get. And I might have a different perspective than you. So we're going to get a larger perspective than any one book or podcast could give us. Second, we're going to talk about our experiences. You might have a leadership challenge before you. Say, hey, listen, guys, I've got this team. Here's what I have to do. I'm not sure how to do it. We can give you our suggestions. This is our version of scrimmaging. Because I can't go to my team and say, listen, everyone, I'm going to practice leading this afternoon. I'm going to try something. And if it doesn't go well, okay, everyone, do over, doesn't count. 
No. But yeah. if I give you some thoughts, hey, here's what I might do. Someone else throws in a suggestion. This is how we can practice. It's a version of scrimmage. People also say, oh, I was in a similar situation. Here's what I did. Here's what worked. Here's what didn't work. You'll come back to the group and say, here's how it went. That's our version of watching the tape. We can see from other people's experiences. Now, we can also do specific things. You can do, we use role-playing exercises within our groups. That's what I was you thinking of, actually. You can do case studies, role-playing exercises. Negotiation's a great one. You bring in some negotiation case. You've got your role sheet. I have mine. We're going to negotiate against each other. And we practice. That's the drilling. That's the, hey, we tried to do this, and what did we learn from it? So everything that we can learn from other experiences, like sports, for example, we can apply if we're just conscientious in how we do it. I love that. And actually, I'll add one more to the list. Um, all of this sounds like a mastermind. This sounds like a fantastic framework to use within a company or organization. But a mastermind is very similar to this in certain ways, where you sit down and you have a problem and you get people helping you out type of thing. But then you can add some of these elements that you've been talking about. So like the role playing <laughs> and the, you know, the various group settings and types of things and practicing and huddling and drilling, all those things that you talk about. I mean, that's, that's, that's a fantastic idea. Um, so it's is, actually, it is similar to a mastermind. I don't like that term okay. for marketing reasons. Mastermind, that is the current trending term. Everyone wants to do it, a mastermind. It really is. And then what happens is someone says, oh, join my mastermind group, but you're going to have to pay me. And you get these mm -hmm. coaches. I am not a coach. I don't want to do that. But you get these people getting you to pay them hundreds or thousands of dollars to join this mastermind group. And this is the secret to mastermind groups. The reason they do that, it's easier than one-on-one -on -one coaching because one-on-one, -on -one, okay, you're sitting there, you ask me questions, I have to just be on the spot and give you answers. With a mastermind group, I let you all coach each other. That's how mastermind groups work. That's the secret. Yep. You don't need to pay that person to run it. If you're very junior, maybe if you're very new, but especially as you're getting into mid-level, if you're self-directed enough to want to learn, get enough other people like you and you together can organize this. You don't need to pay that person to run it. Amen. Yeah, not at all. And in fact, if you are a part of other groups where you know there are people like you, just go get them and just do it. I had a, a, a small group here in Northern California where I'm from. We did the same thing. One guy reached out. There's four or five of us that just all were trying to push in the same direction. And we just got together once a couple times a month and did the same type of thing. So yeah, totally agree. You don't need to pay for the masterminds. Um, you can do ha have a great one just on your own. Um, and you should be able to get your company to support this. The oh, download, yeah. they said it's free there, and I don't charge for any of this. So your company can take it and run with it. If you're at a company, the advantage to this, not only are you upskilling all of your employees, you're increasing employee engagement. So important these days with a great resignation and people wanting to leave, you're saying, we care about you. You are increasing your internal network because you shouldn't do this group just with other people on your team. You want to get people from different departments so they bring in different perspectives. That's gonna help you get to know people in different parts of the company. Also important for you and the company. And lastly, you build up a common language. So for example, if you use the book, Good to Great, they talk about the hedgehog model in that book. Well, if everyone's read that book, you can say, oh, well, hedgehog model. If it's, oh, right, yes, I know exactly what you mean. So you get all these benefits and it costs the company nothing. Yeah, so your organization, point. it's very easy to sell it to them. Yeah, actually, as you were talking, it made me think there's a book called, uh, I think it's by Cal Newport, So Good, They Can't Ignore You. That's what it's called. Uh, I read it in college and he, he talks about this idea of the current career currency and you building up your career capital, you know, how much you're worth into an organization. And if you do something like this and you get this up and going, think of how value, how valuable you are to that organization and the, the type of, uh, think how different your year end review would go or think how different your career progression might be if you start doing stuff like this. Yeah. So this is, this is a great idea. By the way, the copyright on that download, I put this in intentionally, you can modify the document, you can take my name off of there and put your name on there. So you can take you the credit. Like the <laughs> because that's, that's very what, generous of you, Mark. Very generous. That's what people, I'm, I'm not here to do coaching and make money that way. I am here to help people be successful. 
And if that means you get all the credit, I am happy for you to get the credit. You're the one doing the hard work. You're the one selling it to your company, saying it up. You should get the credit. So do that, get the win, get that promotion and help your organization. Yeah. And there's so many ways I feel like you could do this. In our virtual world now today, you could even do it over Zoom and you could record it and then go back and see yourself maybe in a sales call or see yourself in a in a meeting and you can have parts of the group and group watch parts of the recording. You know, you, there's all sorts of tools that you could do this virtually or even in person as we're starting to kind of un, unwind some of the restrictions here from COVID in the last, you know, last little bit. So yeah, there's lots of opportunities to use this and you could have a lot of success and develop a lot of these skills that we were talking about here towards the beginning, right? These kind of maybe missing skills, just skills that we all need to sharpen and get better at. And, uh, just because maybe you already were naturally inclined doesn't mean that you can't get better at it or you can help others. And, you know, thereby build that career capital and totally change your trajectory. So I love this. This has been a fantastic, fantastic conversation. So we've talked a little bit about how you had some great things you got from your formal education. And you've also recognized that there were some missing skills that you had to go in and work on and figure out yourself. Totally understandable. That happens. There's a big debate, I feel like nowadays about whether or not the formal education system might even be worth it. Or, you know, if there's, it's cost too much, you know, it's still valuable, but it costs too much as one who attended MIT, a fantastic school, but arguably also very expensive. Um, do you feel like the extra time and money spent on your higher education was more than worth it? For me, it absolutely was for a number of reasons. First, my fields are technical. I don't just mean STEM. I mean, tech, your field is technical too. There is just knowledge you have to get. Now, you could get other ways. I've actually read some accounting books. You could have read physics books. So first is just the acquisition of technical knowledge. And that can be easier when you're in that classroom setting. Mm -hmm. Certainly some things like a lab setting, if you're going into, if you're doing plasma physics, I can't afford a nuclear reactor in my garage. So Good there's <laughs> something for you to need the institution. Then there are other benefits you get. Now, particularly, this has a power law of how well it works when you're getting to those top schools and top, I don't just mean the top 10 or just the IVs, IV plus that carries a brand name. Yeah. When people here at MIT, I get some immediate credibility. And honestly, no one ever wonders, geez, is the math going to be too hard for Mark? They're, they're convinced. Yeah. So you get some brand credibility from your university and you get the access to the network system, right? Some mm -hmm. great alums who can open doors for you. That said, not everyone takes advantage of all of this. Not everyone uses their alumni network or met people while at college. Not everyone leverages the name of their university. Not everyone even paid attention in class and got all those technical skills. So certainly we, we see some of that as a problem. I think where we're seeing the failing these days is people, it was that college was a guarantee to a middle-class job. If you go back to the 1950s, you get the college education, great. Some corporation will hire you and you're middle class and very comfortable. We know certainly there's no job stability there. Lifetime employment is gone. We've yep. also seen, I think, a divergence of the set of skills necessary and the set of skills that you get in school. And so whereas in the 1950s, you could get an accounting degree and You'll get a job in some accounting department, it's a big company, and go on into a career. Now that degree alone isn't sufficient. You do need some of these other skills that you're not getting. Likewise, we're seeing a lot of jobs. I know people who went to very expensive schools. Now, we always know the joke about the philosophy major who winds up making fries. That's what I was thinking. Yep. People think. And we, we certainly see if you're a poetry major you're in trouble. If you're a poetry major at Yale, you can still go into consulting in Wall Street. But if you're a poetry major at school ranked number 962, it's going to be tough. It might be a little more difficult. Yeah. On the other hand, I know people who went to top 50, top 20 schools who then wound up for a little while managing some local retail store. I think, wait a second. Did you really need $80,000 of debt to do this. And in fact, that art history degree or even something more practical, maybe let's say a, a writing degree, that's not really going to serve you well in that job. You have been better off 
with more vocational training, learning a little HR, a little marketing, a little accounting. That would let you be set up for success. So the problem is we're seeing this disconnect between the skills you're getting and the skills you're using. I think college is still cost-effective when you know how to use those skills, whether you're getting the meta lesson and being able to apply them elsewhere or picking up some of these other skills. But I also recommend for many, we need more vocational training in general. And by the way, my own field, software engineering, software engineering is becoming more of a vocation. You don't necessarily need a four-year degree to do it. So I think we need more vocational training set up for a particular role and discouraging people from going to college just because they think that guarantees middle class. Yeah, I really appreciate this perspective because I think you're someone who's uniquely positioned to share the perspective as one who attended some of the, you know, the best higher education that we have here in the United States. And then having worked within that system and seen some of its, um, failings in your own career experience, I think you're uniquely positioned to kind of see where there could be some improvements made there. Um, and I really like this idea of college is still valuable if you use it appropriately. There is a place for it. It's not that college is not valuable and it's not that self-education is the end-all be-all. You need both, but both need to be used appropriately, right? Self-education can be effectively worthless if you don't apply it. You don't talk about, you know, experiment and teach and do those things that we we're kind of talking about earlier and setting up the, the, the different peer learning groups and things. If you don't do those things, your self-education can be just as worthless as the philosophy major going and working in the local store or the philosophy major in school 979, you know, or whatever, you know, type of thing. Um, so I think that's a, that's a very, very good point. We all also learn differently. Quite honestly, the person I was at age 17 when I went to college, if I didn't have, here's class you need to show up to, I would not have been very good at learning on my own. Even when I did Amen. have class I had to show up to, I had a few bumps along the way until I learned how to do it. There are other people who college is not the right approach. They are not good at sitting in the classroom for four years and getting the education, even if it's hands-on and not just lectures. They are the people who would be better off. Go try to build your own company. Go try to do something, and you're going to learn that way. So we have to recognize each person is different, and we might even be different from ourselves at different times in our lives. So there is no one-size-fits-all. I agree. I think it's been interesting from a cultural perspective that there has been – tell me if you feel the same way. I feel like there's been this push the last, let's say, 20 years to just push towards college education, which once again, like we've talked about, there's nothing wrong with that. You can learn some great things, whether the meta lessons or, you know, yada, yada, yada. But I feel like it has created this almost feeling that you have to go, even if you don't fit in well in the school, you know, from that learning system, or maybe you'd be better in a vocation instead of going out and getting a, a degree at a college. But it almost feels like, well, you have no chance if you don't go to college now. Do you feel like that is a trend that you've observed as well and kind of a, a cultural fit feeling as, as you've been around higher education institutions? That is true. Certainly, if you look at the number of people who have gone to college, it did go up over the past roughly 100 years or so, 120 years. Mm -hmm. It used to be, if you go back to the end of the 19th century, it was the privileged, the elite, the, the ones elite, who are yeah. going on to the very white collar jobs. I don't think there was a real distinction, white or blue back then. And then basically it was after World War II when the GI Bill came in, we knew college opened up doors and the GI Bill democratized access to higher education. It became very common. And we had this huge boom. We had lots of new jobs. So there's lots of opportunity and jobs could raise their standards. We're seeing now companies as they're struggling during the Great Recession are starting to say, do we actually need a college degree for this job? Maybe not. Maybe we can alter the standards. But back when labor was plentiful, you can just raise your standards even to things that weren't relevant because, well, you had to narrow the pool anyway. Now, I think there's been a second trend, which is if you look at someone who came out of high school, let's say in the 1930s, mm -hmm. their knowledge compared to someone with a high school degree today, I am 
speculate. I have not looked at the data for this, so I'm going out on a limb and someone can say Mark's totally wrong That's on okay. this. That's okay. We're not going to hold your feet to the fire or, or make you have to retract anything. You go on a limb. Go for it. But I believe the standards have gotten lower. Certainly when we look at American mm. capability, we say, what is the reading level of the average 10th grader? And it turns out to be below the 10th grade. As we've dropped in how well our students perform in standard skills like math and reading comprehension, well, that high school degree has become a lot less valuable. And the ones who are graduating at the level it should be, many of them do go on to college. The ones who are below average tend to just have the high school degree. Again, I don't know the data exactly. It's a little hand wavy here. So I think in that sense, the high school degree has basically become a proxy for not even high school level. Well, a college degree is, yes, you were high school level and above, and now you've shown it with your additional degree. So the value of the high school degree itself, I think, has become less valuable because so many people graduate, even though they are not proficient. That is a fascinating perspective that I would love to dig more into the details. I mean, and that could invoke an entire conversation around the viability of just our you know, high school systems and our just general education system here in the United States. And I don't have the knowledge or know how to even have that conversation, but that, that is a very interesting perspective as well. Um, so, and you, so just make sure that I understood that then in your perspective, you feel like the higher, the high school education, the quality of it overall was better back in say the thirties, forties and fifties, you would actually more of the graduating students would attain a the appropriate level whereas today we're, we're more focused on just getting people the high school degree so the quality itself has actually dropped is that effectively what you're saying you feel like that's what i'm saying now again i'm gonna have to look up this data i certainly know the data today shows a lot of people subpar level well yeah i, mean, I it's believe been well documented that we as the united states are not performing as well relative to many other countries over time the last you know few decades on high school testing scores and various things now on a relative basis if you think about high school level education in the 1930s the us was very strong other nations probably were not as strong they still probably had people going to high school so it might be on a relative basis it might be our quality has not declined on an absolute basis, but it's on a global relative basis. Again, I'm not sure. I'm definitely gonna have to look at the data, but yeah, I suspect- that would be very interesting to look at that data. My unproven claim is that even on an absolute basis, Americans 1930s versus Americans today, the quality of high school education has gone down, or at least mm -hmm. the quality of people with a high school diploma, their capabilities, I believe, has gone down. Yeah, that, that would be very interesting to kind of dive into that data. Cause as you're talking, I'm thinking, well, I, I took calculus in high school and I'm pretty sure nobody in the thirties took calculus in high school, but maybe in the 1930s, I'm just, I'm thinking of China just because of news I read today, you know, things like maybe in China, they weren't even thinking about calculus at the time in the 1930s, but now every high school kid is killing calculus in China, you know, just because of their education system and the, how much they push education, how important it is for them. And so relatively, yeah, I might be studying calculus, but the level at which I'm studying is is not the same as maybe somewhere else. Uh, so that's a very, very good point. It's, this is, by the way, if there's any educators here in our audience, we're not saying that you don't do a wonderful job and that we value what you do and that education is not important or anything along those lines. We need more of you, frankly, because you do an incredibly selfless job that is one of the most important jobs and that's teaching the next generation. Um, but to your, my, to your point, Mark, yeah, that'd be very interesting. My mother was a K through five teacher. So I love there and respect go. teachers. I think it's not the teachers per se. It, in fact, if you look at, I think it was a Johnson report in the 1960s. I'm forgetting the name of the report. It showed that the primary factor on education, teacher quality or school quality was number three. It's mm -hmm. actually the environment family and friends, and that environment has a oh, bigger wow. impact on education. And so this was one of the motivations for the war on poverty, saying this isn't just about can they afford nice things, it really impacts their capabilities of learning and overall US domestic productivity. Well, yeah, then I you would, can have a whole conversation around the 
changes in family structure and changes in our socioeconomic structure over the course of the last 40 years and that potential impact on on education as well. And that would be a fascinating correlation potentially. I would say I think our high schools, again, it's not a criticism of the teachers. I think our high schools should hold people back when they are not at level. I think it should be more normal to hold people back in their grades yeah. if they're not performing. Now, that does put a burden on the taxpayers because suddenly you do get this extra set of students, but that also creates an incentive for that particular society, that particular community, to figure out how to get those students up to proficiency and get them out. And yeah. I don't think we have the right feedback system there. That That's a whole big can of worms. I'll note, you pointed out how in China and other countries, they have higher standards and calculus is a lot more common. They do a very good job teaching some of these skills. Now, they're not as good at other skills. In certain other countries, it's a lot more rote memorization, mm -hmm. and that's doing a disservice to their students who are lacking other skills that will be important later in life. Yeah. Some of these softer skills, perhaps, that we've been talking about, right? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Now, th this is a... This is a conversation that we could never cover, I feel like, in just one podcast episode. And frankly, one where I don't think the answer is clear or <laughs> simple because it would have already happened if that was the case, right? It's just, um, it is an observation that I think it is important for us to think about and be aware of and try to do our best on an individual and maybe on a family level, as we've kind of been mentioning this, to counteract some of those potential influences and forces out there and try and better prepare ourselves and our children for success by taking advantage of education in the best possible way and at the same time equipping ourselves through self-education to be successful as well. Um, yeah, great things here. Well, Mark, I've really enjoyed this conversation and frankly, we could take this down a rabbit hole for days if we really wanted to. But unfortunately, we don't have to time to do that today. So I'd like to kind of wrap things up by asking you one last question. And that's a question that we ask every single person that comes on the show. And that is, what does it mean to you to be a contender? It means to commit to doing something. Anyone can say, well, I'm, I'm just going to try. I'm going to step into the ring. I'm going to give this an attempt. But to really be a contender, you have to commit yourself to trying to achieve that goal. It doesn't mean that you have or that you will, but it's more than just, well, I think I'll just give it a shot. It means committing to it, planning, practicing, training, whatever that means for that particular effort, but it is that commitment that makes you a contender. Mm, yeah, because every contender is going to get hit in the face. Life's going to come and it's going to throw a bump in the road, to say the least, but you got to be committed to keep going and push through those difficult times. Love that. Well, Mark, why don't you take a moment here at the very end, tell listeners perhaps how they can find more out about you, your book, or anything else that you'd like to direct them towards. You can go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. There you can learn more about the book, including where to buy it. You can get in touch with me or follow me on social media. You can download the free app from the Android and iPhone store. That's a companion to the book and helps you better learn or retain the information. Great I app, by the way. I checked it out. Listeners, definitely go check it out. Sorry, I keep going. Thank you. I have new content on there every week. And then, of course, there's the resources page where there's free downloads and links to other free content online. And, of course, there's that download on how to create these peer learning groups that you can take, put your name on, take all the credit, and use it to be the hero at your organization. So all of this is available at thecareertoolkitbook.com. Well, I can attest that there's some great stuff in the book and in the app and everything else that you've mentioned, Mark, I checked those out as part of my research. Uh, I'd encourage all listeners, if you enjoyed any part of this conversation, go check that out. You get a lot of really, really good stuff there. Uh, and we'll be sure to leave links to all those things in the show notes. So Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, contenders, that's a wrap on episode 39. Thanks so much for joining us today. As I reflected on this episode, there were really two key takeaways that I have from this episode. Number one, find the meta lesson in your higher education. Even if you've already left college and you're experiencing this pain that Mark describes of not having some of these other softer skills, look back and find the meta lesson that was in your collegiate education. And then number two, 
Don't think of those missing skills as a detriment. Look at it as an opportunity to separate yourself from the pack. Think of it as an opportunity right in front of you to go from being just a contender, just like everyone else, to becoming the champion. Champion in your particular sphere, wherever that might be. So those are my two takeaways from the episode today. So what about you? What are you going to do as a result of this show? All right, guys, before we go today, I just wanted to share one quick story with you all. Recently, I was contacted by another listener of the show named Tommy. Shout out to you, Tommy. He had reached out thanking me for creating the show, and I asked him if he would be willing to jump on a quick Zoom call together. We had a great time getting to know each other, getting some feedback on the show, and me ultimately sharing some thoughts with him about some changes I've got in the works for season three. Well, after the conversation together, I kept thinking that I wish I could do more of those types of conversations with you listeners out there. And then the idea hit me. I could, in the form of a survey. For those who wouldn't want to meet together over Zoom, we could just have a survey. And those who would like to have the more personal interaction and feedback, we could do it over a Zoom call together. Seems so simple in hindsight now. So that's exactly what I did. I've created a simple survey with about a dozen total questions, broken up into three sections. The first is some simple demographic questions. The second, some feedback questions for the show. And the last section is just to let me know if you'd be interested in having a one-on-one Zoom call together. That simple. So if you've listened to the show and are willing to give me some feedback and or just want to meet me one-on-one, hit the link in the show notes or just type in your browser www.contenderswanted.com slash survey and click on the link that'll connect you to the Google Forms. It would mean a lot to me if you take just a couple of minutes to fill out the survey because I make the show for you guys and I want to make it the very best that I can. So once again, hit the link in the show notes or go to www.contenderswanted.com slash survey to get access to that survey. Thank you, and I look forward to meeting with you guys soon. All right, thank you for joining us today. If you haven't done so already, please remember to subscribe and tell a friend about the show. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode, be sure to visit our website at contenderswanted.com to sign up for our email newsletter. As always, a list of the resources and links we discussed, as well as a recap of the show and more about our guests, can be found in the show notes. Please feel free to shoot me an email at rob at contenderswanted.com if you'd like to suggest a guest for the show or just to contact me. I'm always open to any feedback you might have and would love to hear how the show is helping you. So once again, my email is rob at contenderswanted.com. Thank you for listening, and remember, success leaves clues, and contenders are always wanted.